BHSA podcast. We are the independent regulator of the majority of newspapers and magazines in the UK. This podcast is for anyone that's interested in newspapers, journalism, press regulation, or anything to do with BHSA's work, really. Um, or in this case, a little bit of history, but more on that. Um, I'm Vicky, I'm your host, and I am joined today by Senior Complaints Officer Hugo Wallace. And I thought, Hugo, because it's summer, I want to give the listeners of the podcast a real treat. And I know that um, this is a little bit of a specialist subject for you. And also being a bit of a history geek myself, I thought, you know, I'll do something that I enjoy. So we're going to talk about the history of press regulation. And this is obviously quite a vast subject. So we'll be doing a sort of quick canter through the 15th to the 20th century and then a little bit of a focus on kind of world war. Um, but we'll also look at where we see the beginnings of uh, the press regulation that we recognise today. And we'll talk a little bit also about the Leveson Inquiry, which is obviously one of the most pivotal periods in terms of modern day regulation. Does that sound good? Great. Okay, so I think there's quite an obvious place to start on our little journey through history. And that's 1476. So tell us why that is. Well, Caxton returned to England from Germany and the continent, and he uh, set up a little shop um, in, well, in what's now Westminster Abbey, where he printed the first books um, in England. And I suppose, although we're talking, we're a newspaper, a magazine regulator, and now a well, news regulator, the start of licensing and regulation was really the regulation of books and pamphlets and things like that, um, rather than something that we would recognise today perhaps as a newspaper and really from when Caxton first set up his little shop uh, the government was extremely concerned by the effect that the seditious the, and the heretical the, work the wise dissemination of books and printed materials um, could they were very worried about the effects of that and so there was basically state licensing for the government to, to prevent publication of seditious or heretical works or schismatic works um, there are lots of, sort of overlapping statements to that effect by kings and things in Tudor proclamations, but one of them is in 1538, uh, Henry VIII decreed that all new printed books had to be approved by the Privy Council and registered with the stationery, stationer's company. And it was, that was a system that was enforced for a very long time. He, was, he said that he was concerned that sundry contentions and sinister opinions have, by wrong teaching and naughty printed books, increased and grown within his realm. And he said that the solution, it's quite a neat solution, no person in this realm shall henceforth print any book in the English tongue unless upon examination made by some of his grace's privy council or other such as his highness shall appoint they shall have license to do so so there you go licensing under henry the eighth now i know that you have got a little fun fact about the uh, the body that kind of did the licensing which which i quite enjoyed so they were called the uh, the star chamber ah uh, yeah well it's well well there's sort of yeah and the reason it's a nice name you'd hope that there would be some yeah, I, nice. I really want to know the story. Well, it, it had to be some nice reason why it was called that, except that it was called the Star Chamber because the wallpaper in the room it was convened in had stars on it, which was oh. sort of slightly um, <laughs> down the... Yeah, well, <laughs> call a spade a spade. So um, let's move move on past the uh, the Star Chamber. So in 1640, that was that and licensing itself is abolished. And there was a bit of an explosion in publication at that point. Um, because obviously it's kind of less strictly controlled. Um, but then in 1643, 
we see a reintroduction of licensing. Truly, yeah, there was a, um, an ordinance on the licensing printing, and this is really a kind of critical moment people often refer to in the history of regulating the presses, because John Milton wrote his rhetoric, um, Area Didactica, saying lots of things about the virtues of freedom of speech. It's all in sort of nice 17th century rhetoric. So he said, um, for example, that it wouldn't be good to be so jealous over the common people that we dare not trust them with an English pamphlet. What do we but censure them for giddy, vicious and ungrounded people in such a sick and weak estate of faith and discretion as to be able to take nothing down but through the pipe of a licenser? And so it was a sort of great call against the implementation of further licensing, but it wasn't heeded and licensing was introduced. Um, and this is basically by Cromwell's Parliament to kind of suppress publication of material about kind of praise Charles the First material. And then roll forward and well a little bit a long time 1695 just a you know a little skip parliament um re- didn't renew the licensing legislation it wasn't renewed and in a sort of simplification of things really since then there's been a it's seen as a point where there, there's been a general right to publish without um necessarily being a licensing but of course you know various kind of criminal offenses for kind of seditious libelous activity still existed exactly it wasn't a um uninhibited you know, england in the 18th century wasn't uh wasn't a completely free place but um over time with sort of various campaigners like john wilkes and people like that and the repeal of newspaper taxes um the print the development of the newspaper industry uh occurred and there was an a, period of expansion so basically from the 18th century onwards after kind of we get past all this government licensing stuff quite a swift summary of that we we kind of see a rapid expansion of the press as we would see it exactly and you sort of get in then into the start of the 20th century where um newspapers very powerful um as a sort of principal means of um of the news. Well, I think there's something kind of very interesting about this kind of 20th century period which um, also is quite reflective of today's concerns which is kind of the growth of regional and national newspapers being bought up by kind of increasingly powerful chains and for much of the, that kind of interwar period the these proprietors I guess were kind of the press barons of the day weren't they? Well, they were, yeah, they, but there were concerns about the um, the development of monopolies. And actually, after the Second World War, there was a um, they set up a royal commission on the press. The first of a number of royal commissions on the press that ended up reporting in 1949. But the objects of the royal commission were to, I've got them here, um, set up with the objects of furthering the free expression of opinion through the press and the greatest practical accuracy in their presentation of the news and to inquire into the control, management, and ownership of the newspaper and periodical press and the news agencies. They ended up reporting in 1949, so sort of now getting into living memory, and they said that the one thing that they, they recommended that a general council of the press should be established, and the purpose of that should be um, to safeguard the freedom of the press, to encourage the growth of a sense of public responsibility and public service amongst all engaged in the profession of journalism. And then you get a bit of political wrangling so the industry put forward some plans for this body um, and uh, went to the National Archives and I found the cabinet secretary's notes 
a film like Cabinet Meeting in January 1951, where they were mulling over what the industry had put forward. Ooh, do tell us. You get well, what they I'm say. not sure this HM, and I think that's Herbert Morrison, um, who said, um, nothing satisfactory in this plan, except that it is some plan at last. Gives undue influence to proprietors. No representation of outside public. HD then chips in. I think that's Hugh Dalton. He says, without layman, better have nothing. GAI, which I think is uh, George Isaacs, that's not the name, said that there was a need for an independent chairman. And uh, AB, who's better known as Nye Bevan, uh, said that it would be useful to have an independent sec- secretariat. So they were discussing the formation of a, a general council. Which is actually really quite interesting because a lot of this stuff you i mean we've seen in kind of the press regulators looking forward from that point and also indeed some of it um is kind of still there today uh, particularly kind of the independent chairman we as it say obviously have an independent chairman um so interesting exactly um, what exactly so you see the same debates um about well there's really debates which will always occur in when you're deciding on how to cons- how to constitute a self-regulator and what ended up actually happening is that an MP called um, James Simmons he introduced a, a private members bill and the idea he, in his bill he wanted to create a press council by statute and that really um, provoked the industry into putting forward a different plan and then I've got another set of cabinet meeting notes from 1953 so Goody. two years later <laughs> And the, camp, the Home Secretary there said about this private member's bill putting forward a statutory press council. He said, it would be unfortunate if this bill, which provided for a statutory press council, were to receive a second reading. When the interests concerned, under pressure from the government, have now agreed on the main lines of a voluntary press council. Three days later, three days after that um, cabinet meeting where they decided it would be unfortunate, um, the bill was withdrawn. And uh, Mr Simmons said um, that... In spite of all the defects that I see in the voluntary press council, I've come to the conclusion that it having been set up and we having played our part in bringing journalism this far along the road we want to go, this is the resting place towards the ultimate goal. It would be churlish of us to persist at the further stages of this bill at the moment. He then says, we ought to give the voluntary press council a chance to prove its worth, efficiency and competence to do the job with which it has set its hands. So the bill was then withdrawn and the what was called the General Council of the Press was established in um, 1953, I think, and I've got the, the first annual report, and it says here, this report describes the first year's working of an important experiment. The aim of the press council is to safeguard the freedom of the press and combat abuse of this freedom. And they describe some of the ethical questions which they've got to deal with are the alleged invasion of private life by reporters and photographers, um, and the disclosure of secrets which officials and others wish to remain secrets. And the second ethical challenge was the reporting of crime. And the third was the treatment of sex. So those are the, the challenges. I mean, I would say that our editor's code has kind of slightly expanded over the years from those kind of three key issues. Um, but interesting that, you know, so it's kind of similar stuff. As, as somebody that has recently been working on an annual report, I mean, I certainly uh, can recognise some of that kind of stuff in even in today's annual reports. But um, the concerns that Mr Simmons had and continued really throughout the second half of the 20th century and there was a second royal commission and this was to examine a variety of things but one of the things that it did is it severely condemned the general council and it urged um, reform it wanted the constitution to change and the at that point the um the general council of the press became part of the press council mm. um which was snappy a, name yeah <laughs> it, it, it was then a third royal commission 
1977, and this is, um, it, it said that the press council, quote, has so far failed to persuade the knowledgeable public that it deals satisfactorily with complaints against newspapers, notwithstanding that this has come to be seen as its main purpose. A chap called um, Patrick Neal PC became the chairman of the press council in 1978, and at that point they actually adopted a recommendation to have equal numbers of lay and press representatives. Which sounds very familiar to on kind the of press council it under an independent chairman. Today, so in it? 1953, they had, I think, no, I think it was no lay members Crikey. represented, but by 1978 they had equal members. Now we have more than equal. We mm. have a complaints committee. Of now we obviously have an independent kind of majority on the complaints committee. But a majority of lay members. So it's a progression towards greater lay representation on the, um, it, it, in the uh, complaints bodies um, in the second half of the 20th century. So let's move on to 1989. And this is the Calcutt Review. Exactly. So the government set up a committee under Sir David Calcutt. And um, his job was to investigate concerns that the newspapers were invading people's privacy uh, and he made some recommendations and he recommended the establishment of a new uh, self-regulatory body um, and that came into existence as the Press Complaints Commission and it was enforcing a, a formal code of conduct, the editor's code of practice. So this 1991 is kind of where we see the beginning of um, what we is still today the editor's code of practice. Exactly and actually interestingly through especially the last few years of debates about press regulation. It, I think it's a code that, leaving aside other debates about the nature of press regulation, is generally very well respected. Fairly well respected. It seems to cover all the major points you want to editor's code to cover. And there's a process, a, a committee that people can write to, and they occasionally they will make changes to the code according to the needs of the time. Um, and that system continued for 20 years until the phone hacking story was broken in 2011 um, and political pressure on the press and public concern about its ability to um, adhere to ethical standards resulted in David Cameron asking for Lord Justice Leveson to conduct an inquiry into the press. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what, um, I think we're pretty much all familiar with the Leveson report here, um, but just tell us briefly what Leveson's conclusions were. Well, Leveson said that in regards to the Press Complaint Commission, he unhesitatingly agreed, he says, with the Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister, and the opposition. Cameron had described it as ineffective and lacking in rigour. Miliband had called it a toothless poodle. Um, Press Complaints Commission itself said in March 2012 that it would enter a transitional phase in preparation for its, its the, the end of its existence. Um, he made a number of recommendations. And probably the most interesting to look at today is what he referred to as himself as the most controversial part. He basically described a system of self-regulation where you would create a system of incentives for newspapers to join the system. Leveson said that to those incentives might be, uh, we're, we're going to be incentives in relation to how much you pay when you get engaged in litigation, recruitment costs, damages. And Leveson said that in order to justify the benefits in law that would flow to those that subscribed to the self-regulator, um, you'd need a recognizer, you'd, you'd need a body to recognize the self-regulator, the validated standards codes and the arbitration system it would offer. And he actually recommended that that be done by Ofcom. 
And so the report was published and the politicians were tasked with reacting. And Cameron, David Cameron in the House of Commons said this, he said, Lord Leveson proposes changes to establish a system of incentives for each newspaper to take part in a system of independent regulation. Cameron said that he agreed there should be incentives um, and he believed that, uh, that those he sets out, such as the award of costs and exemplary damage from litigation, would be effective. Cameron then said this, he said, Leveson goes on to propose legislation that would help deliver those incentives and, crucially, that would provide, quote, an independent process to recognise the new self-regulatory body that would reassure the public. Cameron said that he had serious concerns and misgivings on that recommendation. He said that they break down into issues of principle, practicality and necessity. And then what became the soundbite of the sort of post-Leveson reaction, Cameron said, the issue of principle is that for the first time, we would have crossed the Rubicon of writing elements of press regulation into the law of the land. We should be wary of any legislation that has the potential to infringe free speech and a free press. In this house, which has been a bulwark of democracy for centuries, we should think very, very carefully before crossing that line. And of course, you know, having just discussed the kind of those centuries of government control of the press, I mean, you can understand, I guess, historically where he's coming from. Yes, although, of course, he wasn't quite right to say that there had never been press regulation written into the law of the land. There's because, some, of course, there as some, we have seen... There have been some fairly <laughs> stringent press regulation written yeah. into the law of the land in the Tudor Kings, but perhaps he wasn't looking back that far. So anyway, what actually ended up happening is that the government reached a sort of compromise, which was a system where they used a royal charter rather than legislation of the, the, the usual kind in order to set up a recognising body, and that exists. The recognising body is the... Press, press recognition panel. Meanwhile, while that was going on, the industry responded by establishing IPSO, which was um, a response and I think a recognition of the need to seriously change the regulation that had preceded us. And so, for example, rather than being a sort of membership body, newspapers would become members of IPSO by contract our budgets would be agreed on a much more long-term basis. We'd be able to conduct standards investigations where there were where there were systemic problems in newspapers' compliance. The complaint system, um, we'd still handle complaints from members of the public in, in the manner of the press complaints. So it was, it was a much stronger body. And also, um, one of the kind of big things to come out of the Leveson report was issue, um, giving people the opportunity to make low-cost legal claims against the press of course with arbitration um, and it's a I mean you you will hear in the next podcast that it's a has recently announced a compulsory arbitration scheme for all the national newspapers exactly so that's a sort of brief history I suppose of very very brief history probably. I mean it, it's quite a canter three many centuries but kind of nonetheless um, I want to thank you because uh, for me personally that's very interesting um, and you know, I, I think it's just really interesting to kind of hear kind of the same themes and kind of things coming up again. And it really does give you kind of a sense of kind of where we've been and now kind of where we are at Ipse. Well, I think to the minds of critics, the recurrence of the same themes. Um, and I mean, when I say critics, I really mean the critics of Ipse that say, oh, well, you know, we've given the press the chance before to set up a self regulation and it hasn't worked is a sign of that IPSA itself is simply a reiteration of a process that has failed before. Um, I mean, it has to be said that some of the previous self-regulators may not have been, were, were not as strong as they ought to have been, and that was 
clearly revealed by what happened during the Leveson inquiry. Mm. But they are difficult issues and it's difficult balancing acts. And I think it will always be a question of, I don't think like a consensus will ever be reached on the appropriate level of regulation uh, of, of the press. I mean, one thing is for sure, um, you know, there have been many centuries of wrangling over this and I am sure there will be many more yet. Um, and also, let's just say a little goodbye to our lovely friend Hugo because um, he is leaving us very shortly. Um, so we're very grateful that he um, has been able to come and do this podcast to kind of share with us his knowledge about the history of press regulation. So thank you very much, Hugo. Um, and we hope, you know, that you can live on through this podcast with us. It sounds a bit like you're, you're just going to work somewhere else. You know, we're not kind of, yeah. Okay, so um, as always, we would really love to hear your thoughts on this. So you can tweet us on at Ipso News. Um, do get in touch and let us know what you think. And thank you very much for joining us. Next podcast, we'll be talking about that compulsory arbitration scheme.